Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Your divine love is a consuming fire. I ask that you might consume us more deeply in love even this day and raise us up into new life. Amen. And please be seated. This morning, we continue in our fall sermon series titled Theological Imagery. About this series, we write, The Bible is full of ideas that blossom from germination in Genesis to fruition in Revelation. At times, these ideas are grounded in metaphors that can be traced throughout the Bible. With this in mind, the sermon series will explore the development of a few core metaphors by paying particular attention to water, breath, fire, and tree throughout the scriptures. Our hope for this sermon series is that the goodness and beauty of biblical imagery arouses our imagination and nurtures our flourishing. Two weeks ago, I spoke on the metaphor of water, and last week, Pastor Ben spoke on the metaphor of breath. This morning, we're going to consider the metaphor of fire. Fire. It occurs when the rapid oxidation of fuel combusts, which then releases heat and light. Fire. It's a special type of chemical reaction. During the chemical reaction, molecules begin to break apart to form a gas, and when they do, these fragments of molecules combine with oxygen in the air to make new molecules, which result in burning. This is a really interesting process. Fire is comprised of molecules that break apart and become something new as they combine with oxygen. And so fire, you could say, is transformation at the molecular level. And this transformation results in the release of heat and light. Fire is one of the four classical elements, which has been used by humans in rituals, in agriculture, for cooking, for signaling, for propulsion, smelting, forging, and incinerating. But to be clear, fire's essence, its essence is transformation, which releases heat and light that can be used for many things. And so when we feel heat, like like heat on our face that has come to us all the way from the sun, or heat on our hands from that campfire, and when we see light, like, like rising at dawn, or at the end of a stick guiding a nighttime hike, when we feel heat and when we see light, we are in a very real way feeling and seeing transformation at hand. But that transformation is so hot. It's so hot. 
certainly change is no small thing. In the Bible, a primary expression of fire is divine judgment. We're all well aware of how this is used in the church. For example, the Bible tells us that God places a flaming sword to guard the road back to Eden so that nobody can get there. The Bible tells us that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, are consumed by fire because they've violated ritualistic protocol. The Bible tells us that Korah's rebellion, resulting in a fire that killed 250 men, was due to the Lord's judgment. And Jesus speaks of the fire of Gehenna with words like, you shall be guilty enough for the fire of hell. And God has authority to cast into hell. But to be clear, Gehenna, translated as hell in our English Bibles, wasn't a place down in the bowels of the earth to which a person descended as much as it was a very real place on earth. Gehenna, otherwise known as the Valley of Hinnom, was a place south-southwest of Jerusalem, which was known for its idol worship. And so in Jesus' time, it became this place that was, was known for, for depravity, for guiltiness, for, for people who were in the midst of that which was less than light and goodness. Now, there's so much that could be said here about fire and divine wrath, but but trying to be clear, all ancient peoples attributed destruction by fire to the gods. And during Jesus' time, Rome had continued with Greece's mythology in which the body and soul became distinguished so that the body was bad and the soul is good. Uh, the body will, will burn and the soul will last and live forever. And throughout the early church, but especially during the medieval period, Christian imagination began to lean on fear associated with hellfire to quote-unquote save sinners. And so think Dante's Inferno. And yet in my attempt to continue trying to be clear, the church has wrestled with divine judgment and thoughts on the afterlife for millennia. For example, in this morning's reading from the New Testament, Revelation chapter 20, we heard about the lake of fire into which the devil and the beast and the false prophet are thrown. Just a few weeks ago, I told my story about being very young and being told by my sweet, sweet old Sunday school teacher that I would enter into eternal fire if I didn't believe just the right thing. And for many Christians, this is just how it is according to the Bible. But church history tells us otherwise. You see, the church has wrestled with divine judgment and thoughts on the afterlife for millennia. Continuing with the lake of fire story, some Christians have seen this as eternal torment for those who don't believe. However, others have wondered, if you're reading Genesis, uh, Revelation 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22, others have wondered, hey, how is it that after the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20, we arrive at the city of light in Revelation 21 and 22, in which the gates are always open, and yet we're told just outside the gates are some people who continue in the way of darkness. Why haven't they passed into the lake of fire? Why are they still alive? Why are they still there? And one answer in church history has been, well, perhaps they've yet to enter into the lake of fire is a really interesting idea. In other words, perhaps they've yet to be purged by fire. Perhaps they've yet to be transformed by fire. 
Perhaps they've failed at this point to go into fire and to come out as something more clear, something more pure and true to that which is good. You see, there's this Christian tradition that doesn't see fire as wrath, but as purgation, as transformation, as this experience of humans that creates something new in us. Of course, this is more than we can get into this morning. In our Reconstruction class, we follow the evolution of thought on the afterlife throughout church history. In case you're interested, I'd really encourage you to attend that class. I'm just trying to highlight here how fire as wrath has also been understood throughout church history as fire as transformation. Now, here's something that I think is much more interesting and helpful to consider when it comes to fire, which is, Fire in the Bible is often talked about as testing or difficulty. We see that use of fire and language used even in life today. For example, when someone finds themselves in a terribly difficult place, when life is hot, right? Piercingly hot with hurt or struggle or temptation. Even today, people will sometimes use language like, I am in the fire, or I am in the furnace, or... If it's real bad, people will even say, I am in the midst of hell. I'm in hell. And it's from this place that Christian people like to try and figure out, why am I in hell? Like, why is this happening to me? Or they'll think, is this the result of God punishing me? Like, is this this fire happening because I deserve it? I've done something wrong, and so this is God's judgment upon my life. Or we'll sometimes get super theological and wonder, is God good? Like, is God good? I mean, if God could allow this, then, then is God even something that I can trust with my life? And as interesting and important as these questions may be, they are as ancient as Job's wrestlings. They're that old. And it's impossible. It's terribly impossible to try and answer those questions with any, any certainty. When I was about three years old, our cat brought home fleas. So my dad turned on a fumigation device, and we went to my grandparents' house for the day. Little did we know that the device caused a spark which lit the house on fire. And when we returned, the fire department was just getting it under control. I remember seeing the flames. I remember, I can still smell that that smell. And I can still feel in my bones how scared I was. How very scared. When I was about five, my parents decided to become foster parents in hope of adopting a child. We had a little girl named Patty. She lived with us for about two years. We were just a couple weeks away from finalizing adoption when a relative out of nowhere said, I want to adopt her. And so she was taken from us, and she was placed with her biological family. And I remember us feeling so, so sad. My mom had MS, which was fairly mild, but at times of stress, it would flare up, and half of her body would go numb. And I remember feeling so worried, so very worried. When I was about 12, my favorite grandparent, Grandpa John, had a heart attack, but he made it, and we were all so grateful because none of us felt ready to say goodbye to him, and we were just overjoyed. And then two days later, he had another heart attack, and he passed away. Mad. I was so mad. I was 24 when I helped to start Pearl. I was 29 when my friend and the lead pastor of our church resigned. 
and in the blink of an eye, stepped into a role that I did not dream about or want. Confused. I felt so very confused. In 2015, we decided to broaden our marriage practice to make room for our queer siblings, and it felt as though the wheels were coming off of this community. A group of people that I loved very much were determined to stop the change, and they tried very hard, and much harm was done. At this exact time, my mom was also dying of pancreatic cancer. And so between the fallout here at Pearl and my mom's pending death, I found myself beginning to shake uncontrollably on the near collapse of mental health. So scared, so sad, so worried, so mad, so confused. And then if we just want to add one more fire to our lives, I think we could all say we've been through the fire of a pandemic, which has marked us all deeply. About these experiences of fire, I could spend my whole life wondering why. I could spend my whole life wondering, am I to blame? What have I done to deserve this? I could spend my whole life asking, is God good? But again, that's a rabbit hole with no objective answer. There is, however, an idea in the scriptures related to fire that I have found real helpful, and it's this. Fire is the primary medium for divine manifestation in the scriptures. I'll say that again. Fire is the primary medium for divine manifestation in the scriptures. In other words, throughout the scriptures, we see the divine in, in fire. For example, our morning's reading from the Hebrew scriptures, Moses meets the infinite, the great I am of existence, in, in a bush on fire. For example, Abram enters into a covenant with God who passes through, through a flame. For example, the Israelites move toward the land of promise, and at night they follow the divine who we're told is the flame. And finally, for example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace, untouched by the flames, when suddenly they're joined by a fourth divine being in, in the furnace of suffering with them. And so fire is comprised of molecules that break apart and become something new as they combine with oxygen. Fire, you could say, is transformation at the molecular level, but this transformation can be observed. It can be seen as light and felt as heat, which I think is to say that transformation is something real and substantial. And according to the scriptures, the divine, the infinite, the great I am is in. The divine is in fires and furnaces in times of life that are hot and piercing. In the 2019 film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, written and directed by Celine Siama, the setting is 18th century France. There's a young lady named Eloise who from a family, uh, from a family at a young age decided to live her life in a convent because, she said, there was equality for women in convents. <laughs> However, her older sister, who was betrothed to a man from Italy, died by suicide, and so Eloise's mom decided to fulfill the arranged marriage with Eloise. So pulled from the convent, her mom hires Marianne to paint a portrait of Eloise to send to the man in Italy just to ensure that he's okay with this other child instead of the first child. But here's the catch. Eloise isn't supposed to know that Marianne is painting her. And so scene by tender scene, Marianne carefully and deeply takes in Eloise. Like not just her physical attributes, but her, her ethos, who she is as a person. 
so that she can paint her portrait. And through Eloise's fire, like through the furnace, through the death of her sister, through being pulled out of the convent, through being forced into a marriage that she did not want, throughout all of that difficulty, we find Eloise slowly but wonderfully being transformed. In fact, she wakes to surprising attraction and love for Marianne. And for a few very brief days, they live in that love, despite the fact that it went against the social mores of their time. And you could easily say that those brief days were the most vulnerable, most honest, most integrated days of their lives. But fire, though transformative, is hot. We're going to pick up in the movie when the betrothed Eloise, the maid Sophie, who has an unwanted pregnancy, her own personal fire, and the painter Marianne attend a bonfire along with other women from the nearby town. That's Eloise. That's Marianne, the painter.
love this scene so much. The song sung by the townswomen is one lyric which translates, they come fly. They come fly. They, the women of 18th century France who are held back and held down and find themselves stuck in the mores of marginalization, they, the townswomen of 18th century France, come fly. This is a line from Nietzsche who wrote, the higher we soar, the smaller we appear to those who cannot fly. But here's the thing. Every person, not just the townswomen of 18th century France, but every person is capable of flying because every person is the portrait of a person on fire. And don't get me wrong, we can't always see it. I mean, fire is difficult to understand, and our experiences of fire can be hard to talk about. They are hot, and they are searing. But let there be no doubt, like Eloise, we have all been burned. Life has burned us all. Can you see Eloise with her dress on fire? Can you see yourself at a time in life during which you had been set on fire? Can you imagine others, parents, friends, lovers, strangers, yes, even enemies who have been touched by fire? It can change the way we understand one another. It can change the way we understand ourselves. Up until 2015, I had the privilege of pretty much being myself while also being liked for being who I was being. That felt pretty good. I'm a three on the Enneagram. I really like being liked. And so it felt really good being a person of privilege, being myself, and being liked for who I was being. But then I began to change. I began to deconstruct. And over time, I became convinced that affirming the LGBTQIA plus community as the divine's beloved was something that I must, I must, and our community must move toward. Letters were written, meetings were held, many of the people I'd spent much of my adult life with at Pearl chose to leave, and some left being sure to make clear how wrong I was and how much harm I had caused. God, I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep and I lost a bunch of weight and I started shaking at all hours and Jen would hold me for long periods of time and we would just cry. I was, I was in the furnace. My life had been set on fire. Why was it happening? I don't know. Was it my fault? I don't know. Was God to blame had he abandoned me? I don't know. But I was on fire, which is to say I was in the midst of transformation. And like Eloise, I was learning to listen to and to follow my deepest knowing despite the voices and approval of others. And now, today, 2023, looking back on it, seven years later, I have completely new regenerated cells in my body. This has become one of the most important growing periods of my life. And over time, I've come to trust that the infinite was with me in the fire, with me in my burning, with me in my purging, with me in my becoming, flying with me like embers in the wind. Thankful? I'm not sure that's the word I would use. <laughs> would you? Good? That feels a bit closer to my experience, but, but good in a way that's like getting your braces tightened. I was, becoming, I was becoming something more solid, something more truly me, but it hurt. And I have no idea what furnaces you've abided within. I have no idea what fires have touched 
your life. And to be clear, I'm not intending you to make meaning of furnaces and fires while those furnaces and fires remain hot. But I do want to say, I do want to hope that our experiences of fire may, over time, help us to transform into more deeply integrated humans. And I do want to say, I do want to hope that like Moses, we might come to see and hear the infinite with us in our fires, in the house burning down, in the failed adoption, in the sickness, in the death, in the changes. The great I am with us and for us in our fires of becoming. For this is truly a place the divine works in our lives. Let us pray. God, we have all been in fires. The last couple of years, we as a world have been in a furnace. And there's been so much fear and so much angst and so much hurt and so many questions, so many questions that we'll never have answers to. And I pray and ask that over time, as these fires simmer, that we'd have the opportunity to look back to question and to wonder and to ponder what it is that we might be able to learn, how we might be able to grow, and whether or not we learn or grow in any ways that we might at least be able to see that you are on fire with us, and your extravagant love always with us. that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.